This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. Today's episode is another installment of Make Remake. It's where we take a look at a movie and its remake and compare the two. Not to see which one is necessarily better or worse, but to see how two movies can tell the same story both similarly and differently. In the past, we have paired such films as The Invisible Man, Rebecca, Old Boy, 1984, and others. On today's episode, we are talking about the 1961 Akira Kurosawa film Yojimbo and the 1964 Sergio Leone remake A Fistful of Dollars. Yojimbo was based on two Dashiell Hammett novels. The main inspiration was Red Harvest, which has never been adapted for the screen. Kurosawa was also inspired by Hammett's book The Glass Key, which had previously been filmed. Kurosawa's favorite actor, Toshiro Mifune, plays Sanjaro, which is a made-up name meaning bodyguard, and at the start of the man-with-no-name genre. Sanjaro is a masterless samurai who comes across a feuding town. In this town, two gangs fight over a lucrative gambling ring. At one point, everyone worked together. But when the ruler of the gang decided his eventual successor would be his incompetent son and not his right-hand man, a split occurred and everyone in the town was forced to endure the violence. Sanjuro sees an opportunity to play the two gangs against each other and finish off all the murder once and for all. A few years later, after the massive international success of Yojimbo, Italian director Sergio Leone made a second film, an unauthorized adaptation of the Japanese one. He brought in rising television star Clint Eastwood with his leading film role debut to play Joe or the man with no name, as a wandering gunslinger who comes across a small Mexican town fighting with each other over who gets to sell guns and ammunition to the American army. Here, the rival gangs are two different families, the Baxters and the Rojos. A moment ago, I called A Fistful of Dollars an unauthorized adaptation, and that's because while the plot is almost exactly the same, transporting the samurai saga to a western gunslinger version, Leona and his team did not credit Kurosawa as the original writer. Akira Kurosawa managed to successfully sue and block the international release of A Fistful of Dollars for three years. As a heads up, today's episode won't directly spoil the films, but major plot points will be discussed. So if you haven't seen at least one of the movies, you might want to do so first. Without further ado, Rachel, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm excellent. Um, Before we get into the similarities and differences, I'd love to know what your overall thoughts are on the films. Had you seen either of them before? Hadn't seen either of them. And I have to say, I haven't seen a Kurosawa movie in has to be at least like three or four years at this point. So it was really nice actually like having a reason to sit down and watching one of his that I hadn't seen before and like one of his big ones too, like one that is very, very uh, heavily revered. So it was great watching it. I really enjoyed uh, both of them. I have to admit Fistful of Dollars, I'm not a massive Western person. Um, but it was really good though. I actually really enjoyed it. And it's interesting seeing Clint Eastwood so young because I'm so used to seeing him as an older gentleman. Um, it's fun seeing him so young and, and like seeing how much he looks like, or I guess how much Scott Eastwood looks like Clint Eastwood. How about you? How do you enjoy them? Uh, well, I'd seen Yojimbo once before a couple of years ago when I, when I first started getting into Kurosawa and I was like binging all of his big movies and just mm-hmm. like absolutely adoring all of them. So I, I try when I'm doing these make remakes to have not seen at least one or both. And luckily you haven't seen both. So you can go in with fresh eyes, but it was nice having, having never seen a fistful of dollars before or really any Sergio Leone films. So I was very excited to finally tap into that. And, and hopefully now I can finally finish off his dollars trilogy because like, <laughs> it always seems like, you know, you got to see the good, the bad and the ugly. You, you got to watch that one. But like, I didn't want to watch it without watching the other two first. And I never had time to watch, you know, four and a half hours worth of movies just to get to one movie sort of thing. <laughs> it's funny that you haven't seen that. Cause I've seen good, bad and the ugly um, mm-hmm. just because of it's, I don't know. It's I think it's one of Clint Eastwood and, and Leone too. It's one of their biggest movies, even though it's at the end of the trilogy. Um, yeah. But it's, it's like probably one of the most well-known, I think specifically for Clint Eastwood's career. So I remember seeing it probably in high school. I think I saw it on TV or something like that. Um, so it's interesting that you saw the other two, well, now you've seen the two and now, now you can go and watch good, the bad and the ugly and you can finish it off. Yeah. Well, I still need to watch, uh, for a few dollars more. Oh, you haven't seen that one either. Oh, okay. No, not yet. Yeah, I haven't seen yeah. that one either. Yeah. And, and from what I gather, they're, uh, very loosely called a sequel in name only basically. It's like a, what do they call it? Like a spiritual sequel kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Like something like that. Like, did you notice any real plot crossover between uh fistful of dollars and good the bad and the ugly not really other than the fact that it's clint eastwood 
Um, yeah. That that was really it. Um, and it's, I mean, they're both westerns, and yeah, I th- you you mentioned it to me when we were kind of talking about this um, before we were recording. It was like it gets better. Like that trilogy is one of those rare ones that, as the movie goes on or as the series goes on, rather, it just it gets it, it gets better. And like usually, mm-hmm. trilogies don't do that. Usually, the last one is not the best one. It's usually probably the worst one. Um, yeah. so it's, it's cool. It's like, it's interesting, but I think it's also just about, I mean, we'll get into this later, I'm sure, but like Fistful of Dollars was pretty much one of the films that started the Western genre as we know it today. Like a lot of the kind of the classic Western tropes comes from this movie. Um, so yeah. it, it kind of makes sense that, you know, you built the foundations and as you continue along with it, it just gets better and better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so then uh, I guess let's uh, maybe start talking about uh, some similarities first. Sure. So I guess the, the first similarity that I want to kind of talk about is, uh, is, I guess, a smaller detail, but one that I thought played a pretty pivotal role in the way the characters are presented. So you both, both these movie star uh, have a character who doesn't have a real name uh, in A Fistful of Dollars. He doesn't give any name at all. And I think it's just the coffin maker calls him Joe a couple times. So that's uh, what he's listed as in the credit. Whereas in Yojimbo, he uh, looks out a window and calls himself like uh, Mulberry field. <laughs> nobody basically. Um, but he is known as the bodyguard uh, colloquially. So uh, the, the one thing that I found that was really interesting of similarity was the use of costuming. So obviously when you're, you're talking about a samurai film, almost everyone is wearing kimonos, but um, Sanjaro, the Toshiro Mafone character, has this really big overflowing kimono where he often kind of like will rest his arms inside of his kimono. And like you can see like the top where it's open, you can see his bare chest underneath, but like you'll have his arms crossed in behind the kimono and like scratching his chin a lot. He does that a lot, which I love that character (laughs) touch of him always sort of scratching at himself in interesting ways, whether it's his head or his beard or something like that. Um, But it like allows a sense of mystery. You don't know exactly what he's doing, what he's doing with his hands, all the sort of stuff. And then a couple times he'll like have his hands down by his waist while still in his kimono and he's able to very quickly because of the size of the sleeves like the hole in the sleeves very quickly pull his arms out and take his his samurai sword out his katana and attack very quickly so it's really interesting that he's able to kind of like hide his movements and what his thoughts are by keeping his arms literally close to his chest and then like on the flip side you have uh the clint eastwood character in a fistful of dollars who when he comes into town, he's wearing this big oversized poncho and you can't see his arms at all. He sort of is doing this, the same thing where he's crossing his arms, he has his hands on his waist, but you can't see what he's doing. And so you, you think nothing of him. And then when he gets into his first fight, he very quickly like is able to like reach for his gun and, and shoot uh, his opponent basically very quickly. And so he's able to effectively hide what he's planning to do and how quick his draw is by wearing a poncho. And unfortunately for most of the movie, he doesn't wear the poncho, but then in the final climactic battle, he actually makes like what is essentially a bulletproof vest by tying a a giant piece, a sheet of steel around his neck. And it's like hanging in his chest and he's wearing his poncho again. And, uh, one of the plot lines is, uh, one of the guys always shoots, uh, the, his opponent in the heart. That's how you know that you kill them is you have to shoot him dead in the heart. And so he's taunting him to keep shooting him in the heart. He, he keeps like getting shot in the chest and then he'll fall down and then get back up like a ghost basically. And he'll get shot in the heart again and fall down and get back up. But all because the poncho is hiding this giant metal plate on him. And once again, he's able to like disguise how quickly he can draw. So I thought that was a really interesting similarity for me. Uh, curious to know what you thought about that. I didn't pick up on that at all until you sent me that note. And I was like, that is brilliant. Like that is actually such a great, a great mirroring, but also, 
you know, taking from the original. I mean, there, I know there's a lot of kind of discussion about Leone copying, just kind of straight copying it, but like to adapt it into American, uh, American Mexican kind of Western vibe, like that it, to me is such a great way of mirroring um, the kind of Imperial uh, era of, of Japanese culture with the kimonos and, you know, the big flowing fabric, like you said, it adds so much mystery on top of the fact that we don't actually know their names. Um, mm-hmm. And so I just, I thought it was such a great way to adapt the original into, into the remake, like, which is effectively what we're talking about. But like, it's, it's, it's just, to me, it was really brilliant. After you said that, I thought about it for a few minutes and I was like, yeah, go that that's actually a really, really great way to do it. And it, and it touches, it adds so much to the characters as well, to the two men. Um, and just to the mystery of them, because they are supposed to be these, you know, really high functioning kind of weapon wielding individuals, but we also just don't know anything about them. Um, so the mm-hmm. fact that we don't really know, I know it sounds kind of weird, but it's like, we don't know their body type. We don't know their, their kind of their makeup. It's, it just adds all to that kind of nice kind of tapestry of, of mystery to them, which I think is, is amazing. Yeah. And, and it just does so well to kind of, ground the story in the reality of of the time period and the mm-hmm. location that the rat like Clint Eastwood wearing a poncho that makes sense because that's a traditional Mexican garment yeah that they're used to one keep warm but also because it's a little flowy that when it's really hot out it's not like it's going to be super constricting really hot piece of clothing on you so it allows that sort of uh free form flow to it as well yeah uh, yeah i i it's I think that what you said right there of like, it's, it's natural. Like it's a very organic piece of clothing for him to be wearing. Whereas as opposed to like shoehorning something in to make it similar to um, what was worn in Yojimbo. So I think that that's, that's to Leone's credit of, I mean, I I don't know if he, he purposely did it to, to mimic it that closely, but um, it's a, it's an excellent adaptation though of that, of that specific point. Yeah. Now, do you have any uh, similarities you want to bring up? Uh, the music, I think, I I love the way that um, I love the way that the music is done in both of the in in both of these movies. So they're they're not similar music styles in any way, shape, or form. But I just like how unique um, they were. In particular, so the very first tune that you get when Yojimbo starts is not at all what you're expecting. I actually, when I was watching it. I had it playing and I knew that the credits were going to run. So I actually wasn't looking at the screen right away. I was, I was kind of like my head was turned. And the second I heard the score come in, my head just kind of jolted. And I go, what the hell am I watching? It's really, really cool. And I love the way Kurosawa uses sound. And I was looking it up afterwards and I saw a quote from him in, I think it's from his autobiography. I don't know if he wrote it, but um, where he talks about how he changed his thinking about music accompaniment. So it was with a composer. I'm going to apologies if I, if I mess up the pronunciation, but it was Hayasaka Fumio um, who worked with him starting in Drunken Angel. But before that, Kurosawa said he just looked at music as being, you know, something to accent a, a, a mood. So if it was a sad scene, sad music played. But it was after he peered up with Hayasaka where he said, you know, he started to look at music and the images that he was creating as counterpoints as opposed to them being in unison with one another. And so in this movie, in Yojimbo, um, Hayasaka, he unfortunately passed away at, at uh pretty young age i think it was 41 um but his pupil uh sato masura masaru sato i think it is yes there you go thank you um <laughs> he was a pupil of uh hayasaka so that kind of continued on and it's this idea of using really theatrical uh kind of I don't want to say operatic, but it's just, it's incredibly, it's very showy music, which is very different for Japanese movies at the time, specifically samurai movies. Um, they weren't using score like that in that way. And, you know, the the moments where it's pretty, 
heavy and there's a lot of tension. Like he's using quite kind of light music in, in contrast. And I think it works really well. And then when you look at Leone's film, um, I think, again, it kind of goes back to the point that I was making before about it being one of the first films to set the Western genre. So the, the you know, the kind of the, the whistle tune, the pan flute that you can hear it in like the Mandalorian today. They, that was pretty revolutionary at the time to set it as uh, like, okay, so Clint Eastwood's character, he's coming in now. And so then they play that little kind of the whistle, the little whistle ditty. Um, and so I, I like the idea of both of these movies just using unique score for for its time um, and not necessarily kind of just going along with what it would have traditionally been at the time back in the uh in the 60s um mm-hmm. so it's it's like it's different types of music but the idea of using unique film of unique unique music um is is the similarity there so i i know you you're a big music guy so what would you think of the, the music between the two films yeah that, that was something i instantly thought of right away and doing a bit more research it was interesting i'll kind of expand on uh your, your point as far as fistful of dollars sort of reinventing the western genre like up until this point westerns were incredibly popular in the united states with like your gary coopers and your john wayne's mm-hmm. and your john ford films and all that sort of stuff it was one of the most popular genres for about 20 30 years and and then by the time the 60s rolled around it was almost a dead genre and so we get the invention of what's called a spaghetti western which is mm-hmm. italians making westerns basically and that's what sergio leone and his crew were, were italian and they basically took all these sort of themes and different types of stories as far as, you know, uh, gunslingers and saloons and that sort of stuff. And then just kind of made up their own rules about it because sometimes you, it takes someone with a complete outsider perspective to be like, hey, that's kind of cool, but I'm going to just do it my way. And like, it was interesting reading a bit more about it, about how Clint Eastwood was talking about how they were filming uh, gun fights happening where the way it would normally be is you get a shot of the guy shooting the gun and then it would be a quick uh reverse shot of the person you know clutching their chest and falling down basically whereas this way they shot it basically all from one sequence where it's over the shoulder of the shooter and you would see the person get shot and fall down that way and like clint eastwood thought it was kind of hilarious that they were just like making up how to do gunfights because in hollywood and in america that wasn't the way you did it and yeah. you just didn't do it that way and so why would you ever change it? And so they were allowed to just basically rewrite the rules and, and Clint Eastwood being a television supporting actor. He wasn't even a star on the TV show he was on because they at first offered the role of the man with no name to the star of, I believe he was on Rawhide and he turned it down and, and recommended Clint who is a supporting actor in it. And so what's Clint going to do in his first major role, tell the director how to do their job in a country you know, a million miles from where he is, where no one speaks English. No, like let him do it. And so like he, they completely reinvented the way they were shooting Westerns, which are now the template basically. Uh, like you're talking with like Mandalorian, like Star Wars, Mandalorian, all that sort of stuff are taking the cues from this style of Western of how to proceed. But as far as the music goes, you're absolutely right. They couldn't be more different, but this idea of upending expectations that's where the similarity is and and i love the way that you're describing it talking about the different kinds of music um talking about yojimbo kurosawa hated the period piece music that was being done in in all the other kinds of movies and so he basically gave uh masaru sato complete freedom He's like, do whatever you want. I don't care. Just do not make it sound like all these dated samurai um, Edo films, Edo set films, because I hate that stuff. And so we came up with this, like, it was basically inspired by uh, Henry Mancini, the, uh, you know, the big band jazz composer, and basically riffed on that. And it added so much playfulness. We're going to talk about tone later in this episode, but like, that was like a huge element of it. And, and Kurosawa loved his score so much. He actually edit it around the score instead of just like cutting a scene when it was over. He's like, no, this music is too good. I'm just going to let it keep playing. 
and uh, watched Ashiro Mifune walk around or standing and staring, basically. And so elements that might seem like it's redundant or there's no new information happening on screen. We're just watching, you know, the end of whatever the conversation was with someone like exiting the room and, and just leaving an empty room, that sort of thing. That was because Kurosawa loved the music that was happening and, and it really worked out. And I loved all the stuff that you were touching on for Fistful of Dollars. Inyo Marconi, who is, you know, deservedly one of the greatest composers of all times, regarded that way. What he was doing with all these different musical cues and, and this highly famous intro like i've never seen fistful of dollars but i know the music from it you know watching video essays or anytime you see like clips on tv where they're showing like the greatest movie moments of all times you hear this music so like it was already ingrained into me in the fact that like inspired basically everyone else afterwards i think that that shows a great deal of debt that everyone owes uh both of these two composers for for the work that they did transforming their own genres I love what you said there that like you you haven't seen this movie I haven't seen this movie but it's like we know the music and there there is something there is something really interesting about watching a movie that has has that much of a historical impact on a genre of film because we could watch you know modern day westerns or even older ones and you know we don't necessarily know where a lot of these things come from. And then to watch this one, it just kind of feels like another, another Western. It could just feel like another Western, but then when you actually read into it a little bit more, you go, actually, this is, you know, one of the first to create, like you said, the Western that, as we know it today. And there is, I, that's, it's such a kind of a surreal thinking of, of like, yeah, I've never seen it before, but I know it, you know, I know the music and, yeah, it's a real testament to 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 the composer, but and Leone as well for like having that kind of vision for for creating the musical cues, like you said, that are still like mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, the Mandalorian used it for God's sakes, <laughs> like that yeah. that's that's crazy to me that it's something from you know nineteen sixty was it sixty three sixty four that it came out, um, yeah that that's that's incredible to me, and like you said, real testament to to what they all put in, all the work that they put in. Yeah, like like if you're watching The Mandalorian and you don't realize that like it's completely based on like Sergio Leone's aesthetic, yeah, this wandering gunslinger who doesn't have a name, who people have no information about what their background is. That's what Mando is. Mando is the man with no name. He is Clint Eastwood, basically. And then also a really cute baby Yoda. Yes. Just, just, <laughs> My last comment <laughs> about music is. One other thing that was kind of interesting is along with these two very iconic, very interesting scores that, like I said, could not be more different from each other, but play the role that they need to for their films. A component that actually is similar in both of these movies is the use of wind. Very often Mm. we get these great musical montages and then all of a sudden, you know, it'll be dead quiet and all you hear is the rustling of the wind blowing and howling through these streets because it's showing how empty these towns are because everyone is hiding inside for fear of violence and things like that. But both films utilize howling wind in the exact same way. And another trope that we see, like another, I I hate to call it a trope because it's now a trope, but back then it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but just another thing that you you associate with if if a filmmaker wants to, you know, show space and emptiness in and void, then wind is probably like the best way to show it outside. Obviously, um, you know, you just kind of show like, yeah, there, there's nothing here to catch that sound. There's nothing else around that's gonna that's gonna absorb it. It's just complete emptiness. Um, and it gives them that kind of superhero aspect to it. You know, they walk in and they're like going to save the day kind of thing. And like, look how empty, like everyone's so scared of them and all that stuff. And, it, and that adds to, I mean, you, you said it before, we're going to get into the tone later, but um, that, that definitely adds to it. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Like the sound effects of, it's not even sound effects. It's just like emphasizing the, the uh, environmental sounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's sort of interesting. You know, you're talking about sort of a superhero film. I know the idea of, of watching, you know, a black and white 
international films made, you know, 50, 60, <laughs> 70 years ago sound so daunting to most people. But Akira Kurosawa might be like the single most accessible yeah. non-English director there is just because he was so inspired by American Hollywood films as far as taking, you know, his takes on, on samurai genres or different. He didn't only do samurai films, but like that was the bulk of what he was doing, being inspired by things like Westerns and actions from Hollywood. He would make it his own. And then from there, you would have all the American directors watch his movies and be like, oh, we have to do it like that, too. So a lot of like, like um, movie rules we know today, the way things are set up, stories are told, shots are, characters, all that sort of stuff. Very, you can do a complete through line of going back to Kurosawa. And so anyone that has not seen one of his films, like I was shocked at how accessible seven samurai was when I, I finally watched it for the first time. I'm like, Oh yeah, I understand this movie completely. Like th this is the greatest action movie I've ever seen. But also at the same time, like you understand exactly the tone it's going for because of the, the familiarity between directors. hundred percent. And I actually saw a, I want to say either today or yesterday that uh, Zack Snyder did some interview, I think it was probably for Army of the Dead, and he was saying that he has what he calls a Kurosawa-inspired Star Wars um, that he he didn't get developed, like that somebody shot him down or whatever, but he wants to do it later. And I was kind of like, I saw that and I thought, yeah, but Star Wars is a Kurosawa-inspired already on its own. Mm -hmm. Like that's, it already is, which I find interesting. But yeah, right on the nose there, I think it's, it, you know, I think two things for, or maybe three things for Kurosawa films that put people off, and it's the black and white. It's not in English, and the, his movies are very long. Like they are, they are pretty. They're longer than the ninety minutes that I think that we've become ninety to two hours, like to that we've become mm -hmm. a bit um, accustomed to. But it goes by really quickly, you know. Like you're so engaged in the way he tells stories and um, the imagery that he uses. It's it's a quick read. And like you said, a quick read, it's not, you're not reading a book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a quick watch. And um, it's like you said, it's, it's, there's something very familiar about it because we have seen it before. But the fact is, is this is the original, like this is where it came from. Um, so I, I think particularly for people who are like, if you're at all interested in um, history, like film history, like that's a place to start. And I know you did uh, an episode where, about Japanese film, and I know Kurosawa featured heavily in it. So just to plug that episode, you can go back and watch that. <laughs> Thanks. Or listen to that, not watch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And then, like, for anyone that doesn't know what you're talking about as far as Star Wars being inspired by Kurosawa, the biggest inspiration for George Lucas was the Kurosawa film uh, Hidden Fortress, where mm -hmm. I have not seen it, but I've read the plot description, but it's basically almost beat for beat a lot of what happens in A New Hope. Yeah. It's interesting. It's like it's an interesting story because I mean, Star with a, a New Hope came out in I think the 70s, right? So 77, I believe. Was it 77? So you know, American audiences at the time weren't clamoring, especially at that time, weren't clamoring to watch Japanese cinema for various reasons. I mean, you have the, still the fallout from World War II and then kind of the coming up of um of Japanese manufacturing um which took over some of the American jobs. So it wasn't a time that I, I don't think that they were ready to embrace Japanese cinema. So a lot of American filmmakers were kind of able to get away with, I don't want to say copying. I'm not saying copying. They weren't copying, but just being inspired by without anybody realizing what the original source was, you know, mm -hmm. and, and then they, they, and then you end up kind of having George Lucas who takes a lot of the credit for star Wars, which he should get. I'm not saying he shouldn't get credit for star Wars. Um, but yeah, it, it is heavily inspired by it. And I'm not going to say he copied it, but it's, if you ever do get a chance um, to look at the two, it's, it is very, very interesting to watch them or not to watch them, but like to read them kind of back to back. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I've seen uh, like, photo stills where they like compare shot compositions between the two and, and mm -hmm. shocking how identical some of it is. I mean, I don't want to accuse anybody of copying. I'm not going to accuse George Lucas <laughs> of copying, but well, I, I don't, I don't think it's a, it's a thing about copying or not. Like a part of film language is very often repeating shots because you understand what the original shot meant. And so True. you're seeing it a second time, you know what the director is trying to convey the, 
every director does this. And I don't think it's a matter of, of stealing or not stealing. It's like people can accusing Quentin Tarantino of his entire career being theft. Well, <laughs> sure. If you want to make that point, you can, but also on the flip side, it's because he is pulling from all the movies that he loves and, and, trying to recreate the emotions he felt watching those films in his own films. And most of the time you look at what his references are, I'm guessing most people haven't seen them anyway. So what does it really matter? It's true. And if, I mean, the hope is, is that if you are interested in it and you take a look at one of these Western films that is adapted from an international movie, is that you go and look at the original, like maybe it piques your interest. And then you say whether it's inspired by, or if it's a straight remake of it, that you watch it and you go, oh, it's interesting. And then, you know, try to find a way to track down the the original copy. And if that's what, you know, American filmmakers can do for international filmmakers, I think that's great. Like it just opens the world up of the world of cinema up to more American audiences or North American audiences. I don't know why we're um, yeah. excluding Canadians from this because Canadians do like kind of fall into the same trap is we watch what's around us and there's nothing wrong with that. But anyways, we're going on a bit of a tangent here. <laughs> A little bit. Um, do you have any other main similarities you want to discuss? Obviously, this plot is is almost identical, uh, yeah. save for some minor differences. So I don't really want to use that as a similarity. But do you have any other big ones you want to talk about or do you want to move on? Um, I want to just very briefly, I mean, like you said, there's a lot of similarities in terms of plot. But I want to talk about like the role of the innkeeper. I liked how both okay. movies, they, they I like that Leona kept that in. The idea of this little friendship between... Um, I mean, in uh, uh, is Izakiah, and then for the other one was like a saloon keeper in Fistful of Dollars. Um, I like that they kept that friendship in because it not only is a dry, like a it is a plot device. Like that character ends up being a plot device um, for the main lead to kind of reemerge. But I like that that was there to give a bit of humanity almost to the to the main character. Um, to the unnamed man, because otherwise he just is this kind of blank person, you know, but when we see him really get to interact and form a, I don't know if it's a genuine friendship, but form a friendship of some sort of relation with another character. Uh, I, I think it just adds a nice depth um, to, to that character and it helps build it a little bit. So I'm, I was really, I really liked that Leona kept that in. Um, for his because he could have you know changed the role of it or or done it a little bit differently Uh, and i like that it was an innkeeper as well because that's kind of you know a a bit stereotypical of like it's a barkeep but i like that like it's it's a person who gives you alcohol like a person who gives you Mm -hmm. um who serves you and, and and kind of is there for you to listen to you and uh, you know, provide comfort for you and advice or help, whatever it may be. Uh, so I, I really like yeah. that that kind of through line that they kept for both of the films. Yeah, I would I would I would classify it as hospitality. There you go. Yeah, he's providing, and and it's it's so true. Like uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm I didn't think about that, but I'm glad you you brought this up because yeah, the, those characters play a very interesting role because otherwise without them. You know, you mentioned earlier sort of a superhero aspect. They're basically coming into this town and running roughshed over everyone and and killing and all that sort of stuff where none of it really matters. Death doesn't have any sort of real um, weight to it, except for when you get to the innkeeper, he sort of, they sort of ground everything of like, hey, you know, these are real people that are dying. All the women in this town, these are all widows. All their husbands have died there was so much loss and so much sadness in the town. And so there's only two people in these both towns that have no affiliation. You have the innkeeper and you have the the coffin maker, Mm -hmm. uh, basically the town's funeral director. And the two of them don't have affiliation with either of the gangs. Everyone else either uh, is is basically affiliated with one of the two gangs as far as we're shown sort of thing, whether uh, by money or by force, they're associated with, with one another. Whereas here, you know, you have the innkeeper whose one job is to provide hospitality there to to serve drinks, food. Uh, it's not really known for sure if in A Fistful of Dollars, he also runs a hotel. Whereas in Yojimbo, it kind of seems like he also does kind of run a bit of an inn as well. He's called the innkeeper uh, is, his, is his character name. And so they're kind of there to provide the balance. And then, of course, you have the the coffin maker who's basically on the 
opposite end of things where they're just so gleeful of this idea <laughs> of they're the only ones that are actually really thriving in this business. You know, they talk about how everyone's making money through either the gambling rings or selling guns and ammunition to the armies, but the, the, the coffin maker is there just purely to uh, collect all the dead bodies from the different sides. And I guess luckily both both gangs in the movies uh, still respect their dead enough to pay for a, a coffin <laughs> and give them a proper burial because I very easily could see a plot point where they just basically dump the dead bodies into a ditch sort of thing. Yeah. But no, the, the coffin maker is providing a useful service to the town and they are getting crazy rich because of it. And it's actually kind of affected their mental state where they're so giddy at the thought of every time someone dies, that's more business for them. Yeah. I like that. And, and, and I mean, this could, um, transition nicely into kind of some differences, but like it, there's a, a element of humor there as well in, mm. in a relatively kind of unhumorous situation. Those innkeepers kind of give you a bit of, uh, or sorry, not the innkeepers, the coffin makers give you, uh, a, a little bit of levity, dark levity, mind you, but levity nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Okay. So with that said, I think it's a, a great time to transition to the differences. The man with no name danger fits him like a tight black glove. He is perhaps the most dangerous man who ever lived. coffins ready so we've kind of danced around it a little bit but uh for me i think the biggest difference is the overall tones of these two films could not be more different uh in yojimbo the film is practically a full-on comedy you know yeah. tashiro mafune plays this role of a mischievous trickster he's always observing always plotting you know there's, there's a scene where he's literally eavesdropping on a conversation uh, and so are a bunch of uh, prostitutes also eavesdropping on this conversation and they overhear them talk about how they're going to kill uh, the samurai after he's done with his job so that way they can steal back the money that they paid him. And he's like, you know, sticking his tongue out, giggling <laughs> with these prostitutes at the brothel and sort of stuff. And it's like, they're talking about murdering you, buddy. Yeah. Like, why are you making such a light scenario of this? But that's just the tone of the movie throughout the entire time. Sanjuro is, is such a mischievous little trickster uh, that it adds so much levity. And uh, the side characters are often buffoonish, both in looks and in acting styles. You know, the, the incompetent son of the gambling ring owner. I don't think I've seen a more clownish performance ever. You know, he, you know, he has his ridiculous overbite his makeup especially his eyebrows are, are just ridiculous he often dresses so sloppily he's easily uh confused <laughs> and basically led in different directions by literally anyone that will talk to him like it's it's shocking that this guy has not died yet <laughs> um and even the big battles at the end kind of feel silly despite their destruction but like I contrast that with Fistful of Dollars where everything is taken super seriously mm -hmm. and the violence is much more intense, almost like a early Sam Peckinpah film. The massacre of the Baxters by the Rojos is, is brutal and unflinching as they sort of revel in the loss of life while laughing. And like, it like really is jarring at certain points where, you know, you have people begging for their lives and they're just like gleefully shooting them down and it could not be more different because despite the fact that the characters are laughing, you're not laughing with it. Whereas in Yojimbo, when these sort of scenes are happening, you can't help but laugh at the same time. So it's just very interesting to see how different these two tones could be despite the films having the exact same plot. Yeah, it's like Fistful of Dollars, like when, when they're laughing, there's like a real sinister aspect to it. You know, when they... They're, like it's they're not playing it for comedy like you said you're, we're not laughing and we're not meant to laugh like it's it's not supposed to be funny it's supposed to be adding to just how terrible you know these quote-unquote villains are um whereas in yojimbo similar i suppose to the way that kurosawa is, is using music as a counterpoint to the imagery he's also using humor as an as a counterpoint so you you kind of subvert the the tradition of 
it's super serious. It's a samurai movie. It's about a ronin. It's, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, rival gangs and, and, and people dying and, you know, on the streets and things like that and, and women getting captured and stuff. So it, it, as a contrast to that, he adds in humor, which again, we can see that in a lot of, of dark comedies today where they take a really serious topic, but somehow there is humor to it, whether that is, you know, with the, the facial humor of, of, um, of the samurai of the Ronin, you know, overhearing that they're trying to kill him or it's you know kind of more satire and i've seen that um kind of in, in different analysis of analyses of of yojimbo where it's it's almost a satire and i thought that that was a really interesting look at it because there is a lot of humorous points and you wouldn't expect that like when you kind of look at the synopsis of this movie or or you rock into it it's you're not expecting to laugh i don't think at all I, I know I wasn't. I wasn't expecting this to be funny at all. And I was like, oh, this is actually pretty funny at some points. Um, yeah. So I love that. I, and I, I, I really, really liked the humor there. And then kind of continuing on with the idea of the, uh, the tone of the movie, I thought in contrast to the humor, there's a lot of tension in Yojimbo that I don't know if it's as prevalent in Fistful of Dollars, in my opinion. And I think this is more of an opinion thing where I feel like because Yojimbo, there's he sets up a lot of tension straight from the beginning. Where at the beginning, you know, the two rival gangs, um, they they kind of get along. Not that they get along, but they they can coexist. Um, they're coexisting, and then something happens to cause a bit of a rift. Not a bit of a rift, a big rift. Whereas in Fistful of Dollars, kind of straight away, they don't like each other. You know, straight pretty early on, there's there's a there's a shootout. You know, so I like that even though there is a very, very light humorous tone over top of all of this, somehow Kurosawa's movie is also more tension filled than Fistful of Dollars. I don't know if you agree with that. Like, I, I actually think that's more of an opinion thing than, than just saying like, it's funny. It's, it's yeah. Yeah. I, I, I definitely understand what you're coming from where the humor actually comes from the tension yeah. in Yojimbo. But like, I think one thing that's that's really markedly different about the tones is who they cast as the leads. You know, you're you're comparing hmm. to Sharon Mafone to Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood, you know, for all of his success, I don't think anyone would, would confuse him for an actor with a ton of range. Hmm, He's really good at squinting, looking <laughs> serious, shooting a gun, smoking a cigarette. That's about it, really. Growling, like, yeah. When, <laughs> Yeah. And like when he's put in those positions to succeed, especially with him as a director as well, often casting himself in the lead, he knows how to put himself in a position to succeed. I often find when he's working under different directors, that's when he's sort of at his worst mm -hmm. because he's still doing his thing, whereas the director's trying to make their own tone and vibe and it just kind of clashes a little bit. But Leone was able to really sort of harness what would become Clint Eastwood's persona uh, as far as being a guy a man of few words sort of thing that just looks very intense all the time whereas you compare that to Toshiro Mifone and Akira Kurosawa's partnership and you know despite Kurosawa making lots of samurai films they often were samurai films sort of in name only sort of using that as the backdrop using that setting that feudal era of Japan uh, this idea of you know swords and sandals in Japan that's just a launching off point in Mifune, if anyone has not seen him in a movie before, he has possibly one of the greatest ranges I've ever seen in an actor. I've, you know, you compare his role in Seven Samurai to that in Yojimbo, and they could not be more different as far as what he brings to the table. And a few other movies as well were just like, it is shocking the amount of range this man has and the fact that he can play, you know, the the very intimidating, deadly, serious warrior while also you know, this very silly guy that you kind of would look at as like maybe your goofy uncle or something like that, or he's played bumbling idiots. Just the fact that Kurosawa could trust Mifune to bring what he needed to each scene, and it never was uh, to the film's detriment when he needed him to be serious and intense and warrior like he's able to do that when he needed him to be playful and jokey and, you know, uh, a bit cartoonish. He can also do that, too. 
That's a really good point about Mahuna, actually. And like, and I saw for um, uh, Kurosawa saying about how it was his voice, it was Mahuna's voice that he thought was very interesting because it's very. I mean, I just, I just kind of made a joke about Clint Eastwood growling, but it, his voice is kind of like grisly. You know, he doesn't have um, kind of a very soft voice. It is, it is quite deep and it's, it's, it's growly. And that was different at the time too, for what we kind of would have considered um, the samurai. But you're absolutely right. Like his role in Nujimbo versus Seven Samurai, it's it's incredibly impressive. And for when he was acting in Japan, he was one of the most probably successful commercially and critically actors of his day in Japan. And it's very easy to see why. Like he he is amazing. He is very 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 good. Um, Clint is good. You know, he's good in specific roles. And and they, I think there's room for actors like that as well. There's a ton of actors who are, they're good in very specific roles. But when, they, when they're when they in those roles, they're very good in them. Um, so, yeah, that, that's actually a really interesting uh, contrast. I didn't, I didn't think about that, like looking at the two leads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely play, plays a big role in how the tone is perceived overall. Do you have any differences you want to talk about? Uh, like, let's move to the fight choreography because I think one of the cool things about, similar to what you were talking about with costume, is this way of Leone adapts a samurai movie, an Edo era movie, into a western, into kind of the weapons of of that choice, like of that genre, if you will. Um, but the thing is, it's cool because when you consider the like a sword. It's a very close range weapon and then guns are obviously long range weapons. So you're going to have very different types of not just choreography, but also the violence that you're able to show um, on in in film is very different. So in in Yojimbo, you have a lot of dismembered limbs kind of thrown around and things like that. And it's in black and white, whereas in fa- uh, Fistful of Dollars, which is in color, you see a, there is a lot of blood. Like they, they, they do, they're not shy on uh, skimping on how much blood that they use um, from for the shots and things like that. So I, I always thought I, I like the difference in the fight choreography and just, and again, it's just an adaptation. Um, so it, it's a difference, but it's just more of, it shows, I think it behooves Leone of showing like what he can do uh, in adapting a different type of fight style into his own. And then like you said about uh, the way that the camera angles were of, of, of the way that they shot the fight scenes is really interesting because you do have to do it a little bit further back in order to show everything. Whereas for um, Kurosawa, because everything's close range, it's very tight. And and that leads into the tone as well because it makes I I think that uh, Yojimbo is a lot more claustrophobic feeling, like things are a lot tighter together. And I think it has to do also with um, the weapon choice is that it is a it's a close range weapon, so it has to be a bit tighter. Uh, whereas Fistful of Dollars, which is again something similar to to what westerns are, is is you have a broader scope, the kind of a wider feel to them, um, and mm-hmm the pistols, the rifles, like that all adds into it. Yeah, no, that, that's a that's a great point. And like to kind of compare Yojimbo, you know, this takes place several hundred years earlier, but there is one character who is the other son of the the gang leader. And when he returns back hometown, he has a gun. And mm-hmm. it's sort of, a, sort of symbolizing the uh, slow encroachment of of westernized Western civilization onto uh like Japan and other countries in that area where no one has a gun, but because this one guy has been traveling around, he's been interacting with people from the West a bit more. He suddenly has a pistol and that completely changes the dynamic because he doesn't need to be right up close. He can be, you know, six feet, 10 feet away from you and kill you without having to really get his hands dirty. It's so much different as a form of violence. And so there's a bit of an intimidation factor with that where no one's really seen it. Like you you think back to, how colonization happened in, in North America and really everywhere else when like the British or different armies showed up and were committing war acts against the indigenous cultures. They're all using rifles mm-hmm. and muskets and things like that versus an, a group of people who are using bow and arrows and spears and rocks and just completely overmatched and overpowered. And so there's that element of, of 
control that this one character has just by having a gun, just by the fact of, you know, showing it. That's an, a level of intimidation that no one else has. They're aware of what a gun means, but no one has ever really seen one or used one before. So it's just, it's interesting. In fact, it like gets to the point where later in the film, he tricks Sanjuro by saying he's already fired it twice. That means it's out of bullets. In reality, we look at it, it's a you know a six-shot revolver. <laughs> We've all seen it a million times in movies and TV shows. We know how many bullets a gun like that holds. And so him saying, oh, I've already shot it twice, it's empty. Like, we know what that really meant. And so it was, so it was interesting that they would kind of play on that. And then, you know, there's another character in Yojimbo who might be one of the tallest actors I've ever seen yeah. in the movie. I don't know if it was just because the rest of the cast was short or he was just that tall, but he must be you know, seven, seven and a half feet tall. And he's wielding a giant wooden hammer. Yeah. So just sort of funny where everyone is like trying to get close to him with their swords and their katanas. And, you know, he's got this giant hammer that he's able to swing like he's at like a carnival uh, game. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I think it's a cool point about Yujimbo with the use of the gun was that I like that the other characters aren't like he, he brings the gun out and they don't automatically go, Oh my God, like it's over. Like he's got a gun, <laughs> like things are done. You don't know. No, like they, they continue on with, with using kind of forcing him to be more close range, if it will, if you were. And I, and I feel yeah. like when you're talking about the big guy um, kind of reminds me of Andre the giant. A little bit, yeah. Uh, with with that idea of of, I mean, in, in like Princess Bride or something, where he didn't have a hammer, but he like was throwing rocks and things like that. Um, but yeah, I, I I liked the difference in the fight choreographer, just in the fight style. Um, I just think it's it adds to the tone of each individual movie really, really nicely. Um, and yeah, I I keep saying it, but I think the way that Leone adapted his remake he did a really, really good job of it. And kind of, so what, regardless of what you think of, you know, all the, the, the backstory behind um, him doing it without Kurosawa's permission and all those kind of things. um, Leone did a really, really good job of taking an original story and well, it's not, not original. It's not original to Kurosawa, but um, taking that story and adapting it into something that is very uniquely his own. And then also setting off on, uh, a path in Western for the Western genre in Hollywood uh, alone. So I, I always, I think that that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Cause like more often than not, when we complain about remakes, it's because they're done either not quite in a shot for shot manner, but you know, basically just transposing exactly what's happening mm-hmm. into a different setting. And there's no real changes other than the language barrier has been changed. Yeah. Whereas when you do a remake where you are taking the essence or soul of the story, but then transporting it to how it's either topical to a different audience or a different time period, and that's where you get the most successful remakes. Yeah, I, that that that's it right there. I think you know you can do remakes, and I think they can be done well. Sometimes you don't need to just go watch the original, but uh, you know if you're gonna do a remake, particularly in Hollywood it it's it's a fine balance that you have to to create but it's also you're doing it to yourself by saying that you want to do a remake so you know i i'm looking at uh uh what remake another round the mads mickelson movie um mm-hmm. i just heard that they're remaking that in hollywood which yeah i i heard that too when they announced it and <laughs> and right away everyone was freaking out i'm like okay well like hold up let's at least wait to hear who's involved in it what are they going to make it differently like how are they going to handle it are they just going to you know transport make it literally the exact same story but in english because they could very easily do that where there isn't that much difference between the cultures in denmark and in america but are they going to do their own spin on it because there's definitely an avenue where they can do their own thing with it and so People just need to like maybe chill a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I like, I think it was Vanity Fair, maybe it was Hollywood Reporter. One of them, they they asked Mads Mikkelsen, like, what do you think about it? Are you going to be involved in the Hollywood version? And he was saying him and and Vintenberg, the director, they go, no, like we've done it. Like we, we're, we're finished with it. We're finished with the story. He's like, but we're looking forward to seeing what they do with the idea of it. You know, so and I think if Mads can take an open mind to it, so can we. Because remakes can yeah. be good. You know, it's it's 
even though Danish and American culture have a lot of similarities, there are a lot of differences as well. And so it's interesting to see how they punctuate that and, and whether or not they're going to be successful at it. I think Fistful of Dollars is probably one of the better examples you can use of a remake done well. Like it's, it's not a shot for shot remake. I, I remember reading that a lot of people saying it's a shot for shot remake and there are some shots that are similar. I'm not saying they're not, but um, it's not the exact same movie. The plots are the same, but it's a very, very good adaptation of it. I think, you know, kind of talking about violence and, and the way the fight choreography was kind of bring it back to what we were talking about while this is more of a similarity than a difference i always sort of appreciate when the lead actor is willing to i don't want to call it getting ugly but basically both of them get beat up very badly Mm -hmm. to the point where like their eyes are swollen shut and their faces are all bloody and mangled and stuff like that you so very very not very often sorry you'll get like your lead actor that will be fine with being completely brutalized like that. Normally it's like the secondary character or a henchman or something like that. You you don't get your, your main character doing that. And so the fact that both Tashir Mifune and Clint Eastwood were able to be filmed in this manner where they just get absolutely beat up and so despondent and have everything taken away from them. I really appreciate that from a filmmaking perspective because we just so rarely see it and, and actually add an element of realness to it because you can actually feel their pain. It's funny how that is and and just looking at like trends in film where the lead character, like you said, for a long time, they're untouchable. Like they're, they are impervious to pain or any sort of, of actual threat. And then it creates like no stakes, right? But then you have filmmakers like Kurosawa and, and Leone who, who subvert that and go, no, like we're going to go against it. And then it came back the other way of, no, let, let the leading men be leading men you know we don't want to mess up their faces and now i kind of feel like we're coming back around to you know the the they they're not always going to win you know like we're kind of bringing that idea a little bit back to the front although i think especially with all the superhero movies that we have like we kind of know like the superheroes are going to be okay although you know i mean in endgame and infinity war like they do lose superheroes which for some people like that's not okay to do because you don't ever want to lose them. Um, but I, I kind of feel like we're kind of coming back around to this idea of like, let's get them beat down and hurt to have a bit more realism to it. Yeah. Because it, it makes their comeback, their, their eventual uh, win overcoming the odds that much more believable. Yeah, true. Very true. And I, you know, it's like, especially in action movies, I, I don't know if John Wick, maybe, well, John Wick, he's not an everyday guy though, but it's this idea of just, you know, you don't necessarily need to have a superpower to do it. And and I think, like, I just watched Nobody about a month ago and I was really obsessed with it. I watched it like three times in a row. <laughs> I was just really <laughs> taken with it. But it's just this idea of like these unsuspecting people um, who could be like me or you, you know, and maybe not me but like you know where where we can definitely not me well you know it, maybe it could be we just need to work out a little bit and then just a little bit of gun yeah. training and then we could be like that but it adds to that i guess um yeah like the relatability of it i suppose you know where where hollywood movies aren't just pristine perfect things anymore like they can be a bit rough around the edges and there can be some realism involved um, and I like that. Like, I, I like that kind of turn and hopefully we see more of it. Um, but it's interesting to kind of trace it back to movies like Yojimbo and Fistful of Dollars where, you know, the hero, the main guy, he isn't always successful. He isn't always able to dodge everything. He he will get beat down at some point. And like you said, it makes his, you know, comeback that much more gratifying for audiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, and I think my last kind of difference, it's its sort of small, but it definitely sort of set up the tone a bit as well. Uh, and Yojimbo, the, the feuding factions almost have a bit of a Shakespearean feel to it. They were former partners, but when mm-hmm. Saibei, the, the gang, the main gang leader, plans to leave his gambling ring to his son, Ushitora, his former right-hand man leaves and starts up his own ring. 
Whereas in Fistful of Dollars, it's just simply two warring families who both want to deal guns to Americans and want to own the racket completely, which I guess can, I guess you can look at a bit of a, like a, a Romeo and Juliet aspect of the Montagues and Capulets just constantly fighting with each other. But I feel that like the Yojimbo version has a bit more of a Shakespearean feel to it because there's a deeper connection between these two gangs where at once they were working together and suddenly they've been split apart due to differences of who should run it uh, once the main guy retires, dies, or whatever have you. Yeah, I think that's a good point. If you look at the runtime between the two, Kurosawa's movie is just slightly longer uh, than Leone's by about, I want to say, 20, 30 minutes. Um, and I was wondering, I said, like, what did they cut out? And it's that kind of background that I think they cut out to to shorten Fistful of Dollars, where they don't give you as much um, information on the backgrounds of the gangs. Why don't they like each other? What 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 is, you know, you don't really feel the... I guess it comes back to the tension again of between the two. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, fistful of dollars, you come in and it's just two gangs who just don't like each other straight off the bat, you know, straight off the bat, they don't like each other. And that's set. We know that, but in Yojimbo, they take the time to set up. Um, why does this rivalry exist? And I like the, the scene that they showed, or it wasn't a scene. It was like a montage they showed of um, the different businesses from, from either, gangs in either towns um either mm-hmm. you know overflowing the the sake like the got punctured um the silk uh store uh, got or silk factory got uh, set on fire i liked those scenes like i liked this idea of showing like they are going at it at each other you know whereas fistful of dollars it's it feels more finite in a way like it's it's two gangs who don't like each other and they're going to kind of go at it. Whereas Yojimbo, there's a bit more depth to it. Yeah. We don't really see in Fistful how it's really impacting the town. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I think it's, I think both can work. Cause I think with Yojimbo, it's just, it's longer storytelling and it's a bit deeper storytelling, but I think Fistful of Dollars is kind of, I don't want to say cutting the fat because I don't want to say it, it makes it sound like it's unnecessary. Um, but it's just showing the same story, but just kind of a truncated version of it almost like the cliff notes version. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would almost say it's sort of similar to like, uh, in Yojimbo, it's more about the world building, whereas in Fistful of Dollars, it's, um, it's, it's kind of a less is more approach where let's just focus on this one aspect of the story because that's what the important part is. Yeah, like a singular event versus, like you said, the world mm-hmm. building. Like, just focus on one event yeah. as opposed to um, the entire. Like, I mean, it's an unnamed town or unnamed region, but as opposed to that. So, I like I. It's it's no way wrong. Like, neither is right, neither is wrong. Not, one's not better than the other, but uh, it's just it's two different ways to come at the same story, which is it is very interesting point. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have any uh, other differences you want to mention? Uh. No, I think that that's, I think we caught on everything. I think the biggest one is is really the tension. You know, it's the one that you started off with. And every difference I think that we talked about can lend back into the tension that is built, or sorry, not the tension, the tone of the film. Um, the yeah. two different tones are just incredibly different. Uh, and yeah. but to the credit of both of the directors, you know, like if we just wanted to watch an English version of it then they could have done that too but this is it makes it a little bit more interesting when they actually can change it's interesting it's like creatively speaking it's interesting seeing the same story same story told but in two very very different ways yeah it's also interesting because they made the walter hill directed a version in 96 with bruce willis in the lead where it's uh all, all of course the same sort of story but it's about uh prohibition era two feuding mafia families and Italian and Irish family in a kind of a ghost town, but it's essentially the sort of same thing this time with, I guess, a bit more uh, racial politics involved as far as what their backgrounds are and, and how that uh, defines who they are. But it's, it's a, it's the type of story that you can very easily adapt to any number of different scenarios of what the backstory is between why these two groups of people are fighting and what is the purpose of a person coming in the middle of these two different uh, fights going on. hundred percent. And I mean, like you said, you, you pointed out like there's a Shakespearean aspect to it. So it can date as far back as to Shakespeare. Like it's, it's, 
it's not a revolutionary story. Um, it's one that it can slot into many different, probably every single era you can make something similar to it. Uh, and it can be just as captivating and interesting. So maybe somebody else can take a shot at it again now. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, so yeah, I think that sort of wraps up our episode. I had a, a great time talking about these two movies, finally being able to see a fistful of dollars. And I'm always happy to revisit a Kurosawa film. Uh, Yojimbo is, is obviously one of the all time great. So I was happy to sit down with that. Uh, do you have any final parting thoughts in these two films? If you haven't watched Kurosawa movies, go out and watch them. They're really well worth it. And don't be intimidated by runtime, black and white, non-English. Uh, they're really, really, really good films. And and Leone, too. I mean, he's one of the kind of all-time directors as well. So it's really worth, if you enjoy either of these movies, it's worth going into both of their catalogs and see, and seeing not only what they made, but the impact that both of them had on the film industry as we know it today. Yeah, like if you're a fan of The Mandalorian, yeah. you need to watch these two movies because it's basically the main inspiration for The Mandalorian. It's true. Yeah, it's true. No Baby Yoda, though. It's my second Baby Yoda mention, no, no. and uh, no Baby Yoda in these ones, just just to, to preface that. <laughs> yeah, in fact, there's a, an entire episode, I believe it's in the first season, where it's a, a complete ripoff of Seven Samurai. I, I say ripoff in a loving term, <laughs> but like it's the story of uh, you know a wandering uh, warrior who helps a small village that's being uh, overrun by bandits, and that's the entire plot point of, of one episode of The Mandalorian, and that's what happens in Seven Samurai. <laughs> Mandalorian's good fun. It's just Pedro Pascal wandering around <laughs> with Baby Yoda. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it it picks up a lot. All of Star Wars really has has been lifted from a lot of Kurosawa um, stories in the in the past. Uh, but you know, they make it their own. They set it in space. It's cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Rachel, where can people follow you, and uh, what have you been working on recently? Um, I, you can go onto my website, rachelcage.com. I actually have a few interviews with some directors. Uh, there's Andrew C and J- Jeremy Tory, who are two Canadian directors who I interviewed for Canadian Film Fest. Uh, and both of them talk about cultural appropriation, but kind of coming from two different angles of it. And, uh, so I, I think they're really interesting pieces and I'm quite happy with them. So you can check that out, rachelcage.com. You can find me on Twitter, underscore Rachel Cage as well. Awesome. Uh, so if you liked us talking about Yojimbo, this is not going to be the last time we're going to be talking about Japanese cinema. The Toronto Japanese Film Festival is coming up and we will be doing some coverage for that. We're planning uh, some interesting stuff with that. That'll be later in June. Don't have an exact uh, timetable for that, but we will be discussing more excellent Japanese cinema. Make sure you follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod and let us know what you think of Yojimbo and a fistful of dollars. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pry for the logo design. If you can rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts, it will be a huge help for us to grow and find new listeners. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.